Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We're an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are affecting real lives. My name is Andy Carluccio, and I'm the technical director, um, and our host, Balthazar Marin, is traveling tonight on a plane, so I'm covering for him. And I'm happy to be here with Sarah Rocca, a uh, first-year undergraduate student, a prospective international affairs major. We're going to be talking about the intersections of digital technology and psychology. So, Sarah, where do we start? Thanks, Andy. I'd like to start off by asking our listeners, if you're listening to our podcast on your phone right now or looking at a laptop screen, I'd ask you to look up and see how many other people are on their phones or even just looking at a lit screen in general. How many people are sitting or standing next to each other, not talking because they're on their phones or preoccupied with the screen? In my experience doing this, it's likely that a lot of people are looking at screens and most are on their phones. So Sarah, as part of your research this week, you took more time away from your phone and went to you know stand in line without your phone and went to different coffee shops or were around grounds without your phone on you. What was that experience like? It was definitely surprising. I mean, while I was researching this, I found myself you know, looking at my phone too. And I thought oh, maybe it would be interesting to go stand in line in the cafeteria or in different restaurants by myself. And it was almost immediately uncomfortable to stand in line and see everyone else is on their phone or having a conversation or listening to music and truly just standing by yourself in your environment. That was shockingly uncomfortable for me. And I think it's an interesting way to lead into what we're talking about is how being on our phones and being constantly connected to screens is influencing our psychology. Yeah, and you're definitely right. That constant connection, um, you know, I've got my phone on me and I've also got a watch that's pushing all my notifications to me. My computer's dinging when I'm getting messages and we really are surrounded by our own social media. Um, so it must be interesting to have taken that step back as you uh, have done your research on this episode. So Sarah, I'm curious, does this constitute an addiction? What is what is the medical definition of an addiction? Does it apply to how we're using our phones and our social media? That's actually an interesting question, and it's a real debate going on with medical professionals and psychologists today about whether or not screen addiction is an actual medical condition and whether it qualifies as an actual addiction. The center of the debate here is whether screens are the cause or a symptom of mental health problems. And there are valid arguments here on both sides, like people who are already susceptible to addictive behaviors are going to look at their phones and screens more. Well, on the other hand, it's true that social media, gaming, and technology companies make gaming and social media take up a lot of our time and make sure that people spend as much time on their phones as possible. Could you uh, narrow in a little more on what addictive behaviors are? What is addiction considered in a medical sense, even just as part from the technology itself? What are we talking about when we say an addictive behavior or an addiction to a substance or something else in general? There is a difference between addictive behaviors and showing an addiction to something. In my research, I got to look at something that defined it pretty well. It's a disease of the brain that produces a loss of your ability to exert control, what we call free will, because free will is not something that's spontaneous, I thought. It's the product of the biology of the brain. And there are certain networks and circuits that enable you to do it. So with the definition in hand, is there anything that we can point to as a symptom or an experience of an addiction uh, that came up in your research? Yes, actually. There was a case in 2017 of a 14-year-old girl in the United Kingdom. Her name was Molly Russell, who committed suicide, and her family is adamant, quote, that I have no doubt that Instagram helped kill Molly, my daughter. Here's a tragic and very extreme case of when social media acts as almost a symptom to mental health problems. Based on what I found in Molly's case, she was already having some feelings of depression and anxiety. And while this is an extreme case, feelings of depression and anxiety are relatively common in early teens and young adults. But in this case, when Molly looked on Instagram and saw different aspects of 
depression and anxiety posts, the way that Instagram algorithm works is that the more you look at something, the more suggested posts pop up. And so she started to see more and more of these on her feed, and it kind of built up to all the minor anxiety and depression feelings that she had. In her case, Instagram and social media acts more as a symptom rather than the cause of her mental health issues. That's interesting, though, the role of the Instagram algorithm in sort of in its mission to serve relevant content to Molly. It ended up serving information that might have put her in a negative feedback loop, worsening a different condition, but using social media as the catalyst for that. So it looks like we're looking at two possible issues here with the presence of social media. It as its own addictive substance and also as a conduit to make other pre-existing conditions worse. Is that an accurate stance? I'd say so. I think that's definitely how it's working currently. And after cases like Molly started to pop up in the past couple of years, Instagram and Facebook and other social media companies have made strides to correct that part of their algorithm. But it definitely, those two issues are prevalent as we move into the social media world. So Sarah, I actually just got back from USITT, which is a large uh, entertainment technology expo and conference. And one of the big things that they were pushing this year was immersive experiences and reactive experiences, either in VR, AR, um, installations, uh, trying to introduce digital media into more areas of our lives. So I'm curious about the role of immersion and experience and how that's affecting our mind and psychology beyond just the algorithms that might be serving us negative content. Absolutely. The more immersive and the more present social media and technology is in our lives, the more social media companies are able to collect our time with it and make sure that we stay engaged with the activities on social media and technology. And once we get into that realm of taking up as much as our time as possible, we see social media more as a cause rather than a symptom for mental health issues. Moving towards the psychology of how social media is affecting us, what happens in our brains when we get a like or a comment on something on our social media accounts? When we get a like on something or views on our Snapchat story, we generally have positive associations with that feeling. It makes us feel more connected with people, with our friends, and it makes us feel like people care about what we look like and or what we do and how we live our lives. However, getting into tens and hundreds of people liking your post doesn't often exist outside of social media. Most people are not being constantly shown care and connection in real life outside of the screen, and this difference between what's happening in social media versus real life can amplify feelings of loneliness and feelings that are not be good enough. This can develop into depression and anxiety. So Sarah, you've reminded me of something that I heard a while ago, um, a figure called Dunbar's number, where in the 1990s, a British anthropologist came up with a figure. He believed that 150 relationships was the maximum number of, of stable, ongoing relationships that a human being could maintain. And it's interesting then to contrast that with the number of friends that somebody might have on their social media account, like their Facebook friends or how many followers they have on Instagram, uh, way more than the 150 that Dunbar prescribes. Right. I agree. And there's actually more complicated research behind that now that you mentioned psychologists and anthropologists looking into it. The real psychology behind it, and this is very simplified, involves a lot of dopamine. Dopamine is a major neurotransmitter that influences multiple aspects of your brain, but for this conversation, the most important things that we should focus on about dopamine is that it influences our attention and emotional responses, specifically feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. Now, this neurotransmitter can cause instant gratification, which is not a bad thing on its own, but like anything else, in too large of a quantity, it has negative impacts on our brain, like addictions to drugs or other substances. Because you're not getting the same kind of instant gratification in life outside of social media, you become almost wired, in a sense, to keep going back to your phone and search for that feeling of gratification, all because of dopamine. That's pretty terrifying to think that our 
technology is rewiring our brains. In my opinion, though, it's not enough to write off all people who show addictive behavior towards technology. We're bound to be that way anyway. I think that technology poses a new and unique type of psychological process in our brains. There are new studies that show that teens in the U.S. and young adults feel more anxious and alone than ever before. Now, there are other factors going into this, especially in the past 10 years with the amplification of mass shootings and other political aspects such as immigration that are making teens anxious. However, it is almost impossible to ignore the fact that social media and technology has risen over the past 10 years and it's absolutely showing an effect on our generation in the United States. A recent report described young people playing video games, especially males, will not get up and go to the bathroom in order to continue playing. The same study has found evidence that taking selfies can be a legitimate addiction, especially among females. In the early 2000s, when an advance in computer graphics led us to more realistic and immersive video game titles, there was often a reaction after violent events in the news media to blame the role of video games and participation in violent uh, first-person shooter style video games. I just wanted to give us an opportunity then to look at how sometimes digital technology might be used as a scapegoat to prevent us from looking at other issues that might influence a human being's behavior. Because if I understand correctly, Sarah, humans' uh, reactions and responses is caused by a multitude of different factors, possibly social media or video games, but also domestic policy, international policy, a person's individual dispositions. How does that all tie together? And is it worthwhile to look only at one specific element, or do we really need to look at all of these influences before understanding motivation and action? I think it's very important to look at the whole picture when we're talking about big topics like school shootings. And I think it's just unfair to the whole situation, especially since we're experiencing this in the U.S., to apply it just to one aspect of violent video games. I mean, when we're talking here about addictive behavior, it is we are we are talking about people engaging just with technology and social media and then themselves. There's very little evidence that there's an exact causation between shooter video games or violent aspects on social media or television that uh, relates directly to school shootings or other violent behavior. So that's definitely an important distinction. But even if we're not on some sort of fringe instance, what are the things that an average everyday person should be concerned about in their use of social media? It's an incredibly information-rich environment uh, that the net creates for us, and that's why we use it so much. I, I mean, sounds, pictures, words, text, and what this tends to do is, is promote a sort of compulsive behavior in which we're constantly checking our smartphone, constantly glancing at our email inbox. We're kind of living in this perpetual state of distraction and interruption. And that was Nicholas Carr, American author and psychologist, really giving us a great explanation for what it looks like in our daily lives to be on the fringe of being addicted to our screens and how it really has taken over our lives. So with the hazards all out there, what do we do about it? There are many things going on involving the change in relationship between social media and technology companies with the government, most notably involving privacy, which we're all aware of the recent Facebook scandal involving privacy. <laughs> which one? <laughs> There are not, however, many laws that I found in my research in the U.S. that cite mental health problems as a reason for creating legislation about technology and social media companies. However, there are other nations taking action against it. French President Emmanuel Macron has come good on one of his campaign promises and banned the use of mobile phones in primary, junior and middle schools, both inside the classroom and even outside in the school playground. Children will be allowed to bring their phones to school 
but are not allowed to get them out at any time until they leave, even during breaks. Talking more about that policy, France started developing laws in 2017 where kids cannot bring their phones in in primary, junior, and middle schools. And lawmakers are talking about how screen time is affecting their physical and mental health. In addition to that, France is moving towards legislation also involving, quote, the right to disconnect, which I found especially fascinating, where work emails have to stop after a certain time. The idea is that people should not be required to be glued to their phones for work because email could come in at any moment at the day or night. That's definitely the biggest reason that I'm certainly trying to check all my notifications is, you know, do I have work-related content coming in from an employer or a boss in any other capacity uh, that needs to get a hold of me? And will it look bad on me if I'm not responding to that, even outside of work hours? So it's interesting that France has implemented a policy specifically about that subject. Yes, actually, I found that Cinderella or shutdown laws implemented in South Korea. The Cinderella law basically means that anybody under the age of 16 is not allowed to play online games from midnight to 6 a.m. in South Korea. The reason why this law came about is because supposedly 12% of South Korean teenagers are severely addicted to the internet yep. and it is resulting in dropping grades and a lot of people dropping out of school as well. And again, the reasons for this law were citing children's emotional well-being. While it's interesting to note that there is a difference here in South Korea where they're noting emotional well-being from the parents rather than social media, but I think it's definitely a jump in the conversation where we're talking about technology in terms of mental health. Interesting that these policies relate to the developing mind. Uh, it's similar to something, legislation surrounding alcohol, for example, where you have to be over 21 years of age uh, to consume an alcoholic beverage legally. And the reason for that is usually cited as your brain is still developing. There's a more of a tendency to develop uh, an addictive behavior towards alcohol. So the decision then is to uh, make it illegal for persons under 21 years of age. Well, it's interesting to think about this from a psychology standpoint, and they look like laws that are making great strides. I think children in South Korea and France might disagree. A lot of children are upset, especially in France, that their phones are being taken away, that it's restricting their right to communicate and express their opinion. That's great, because I wanted to ask you about the relationship between policymaking and individual liberty. We see our cell phones often as an expression of ourselves, an ability to communicate or connect with other people in the world. So what happens when the government starts to say to us, well, for your own well-being, we're going to limit the amount of time you have online or in social media. Uh, does that affect our personal liberties? And what is a good in-between? The reaction in France, at least from adults, seem to have been more positive, where they are responding more to the factual information about psychology and the development of children. However, children in their early teens are becoming more apt to want to express themselves. And when they have their phone and access to internet everywhere except the classroom, then it becomes a problem. And while it becomes a problem in France, I think it would be definitely an issue in the U.S. I mean, currently there's a measles outbreak because people can't agree on giving up their right to not vaccinate their children, much less giving up their right to check their Facebook feed. I think it would absolutely be a big controversy. It's interesting to note as well that a reason that we don't see these kind of policies in the U.S. is because the CDC doesn't actually recognize screen addiction as um, legitimate addiction. Quote, there wasn't sufficient evidence to conclude that internet gaming addiction is a condition that can be readily or accurately ascertained in people. So Sarah, putting aside any policy or legislation regarding screen addiction, what are some good practices that we as individuals can implement in our daily lives to help reduce the risks that we're posing to ourselves as we participate in social media? 
There's a variety of things that we can do as people living in this new digital age. One thing that I've found especially helpful is turning down the colors on your phone. Like as I've talked about before, dopamine is a really big part of why screens can become so addictive. And one of the reasons for that is the colors on Facebook and Instagram are very engaging to our brain. And so if you, I know if you have an iPhone, you can turn your screen on to nighttime mode or turn it on to muted colors. And turning down those colors will make the screen become less visually stimulating. The new update on iOS allows you to look at how much time you're actually spending on your phone and which apps are taking up most of your time when you're on your phone. That's the new screen time app? Yes, yeah. There are also apps like Off Time that'll shut down your phone completely for 30 minutes or an hour or a set amount of time. That is also an option if you're looking to get away from your phone. Even taking the time to look up from your phone like I asked you to do at the beginning of this episode can help you realize how much you're engaged with the social media world and how much you probably should be more engaged with the world offline. And that's our show for this week. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer and thank you, Sarah, for sitting down with me today. Ironically, I'm going to ask you to give us a like or a comment on our social media to make us feel good about ourselves and help disseminate this podcast further. Remember that you can check out the Global Inquirer's previous episodes on SoundCloud or Spotify, and you can keep up to date with us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week when Balazar sits down with Anna to talk about the oppression of the Uyghurs in China. We'll see you next week.